This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got a thousand dollars or a million dollars, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealthbar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com/canadaland, and you'll get a one hundred dollar fee credit. From Canadaland, this is Oppo. I'm Sandy Garasino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, where we're enjoying a solid three full days of summer. And the hail has stopped. Hallelujah. Well, for the moment, I think there's going to be a little more this afternoon, but that's fine. That's fine. And here it's pretty good in Vancouver as well. So it's summertime in Canada, everybody. Enjoy it while it lasts. It'll end next week. It's gone next week. It's gone. It's over August 15th. August 15th, you're done. Get back inside your boxes. (laughs) Get into your basement. Hi, everybody. You've probably heard about QAnon, the pervasive online conspiracy that started in the wake of the United States election 2016, came out of uh, what we now know as Pizzagate and has uh, morphed into the Canadian scene. You know what? I have to be honest. I kind of am fascinated by conspiracy theories, but this one's weird even for me. I find it hard to even follow what the QAnoners believe. All I know is that like people started showing up at Trump rallies with Q signs and it had something to do with some deep state agent posting stuff on Reddit. But I don't live my life on Reddit and on image boards, so it's going to be really interesting to get into it. Corey Huron, the man who broke into Rideau Hall or attempted to break into Rideau Hall with several guns, allegedly posted some of QAnon's theories on social media along with a host of other conspiracy theories. So he had definitely appears to have gone down the rabbit hole. So to help us get a sense of what QAnon looks like here in Canada and around the world, we're joined today by Marc-André Argentino, a researcher who specializes in online extremist groups. So Sandy? Jan? This whole uh, Canada-US safe third country agreement? Yes? Could you explain me? Could you explain me what's happening? Okay, so there's a general principle. As I understand it, I'm not a refugee lawyer. I'm not, I don't have a lot of expertise in this area. In fact, I'm not even a practicing lawyer anymore. You're a lawyer enough for our purposes, Sandy. And you're not charging us lawyer rates. That's the important thing. <laughs> then you get the cut rate for you. <laughs> for you, anything, anything. Anything for you, Jen. So there's a general principle, as I understand it, in refugee and immigration law that as a refugee, you're meant to seek asylum in the first safe country that once you have fled your your country of origin, you are, as a general principle, to seek asylum in the first safe country that you get to. Isn't this to sort of prevent refugees from sort of country shopping a little bit? Well, I don't really want to comment on all of it. I think what it is to attempt to do is to try and regularize the um, refugee and immigration situation. Typically, most Canadian refugees, as I understand it, come from more formal refugee applications where they're in refugee camps um, located around the world. What we are seeing now, of course, the United States is experiencing an influx of refugees from South America, uh, South and Central America. And we have an agreement was signed in 2002 and commenced in 2004 under the previous Liberal government, designating the United States as a safe third country. So this was a bilateral agreement between the United States and Canada. 
in the fallout of recent developments in the United States over their refugee asylum protocols and what's going on there. We all know about um, really the catastrophe that's going on, not only with um, irregular immigrant attempts to cross the border, but also with refugees and the, just basically the collapse of a system there. There was a challenge in Canada's federal court challenging the safe third country designation of the United States. And the legislation was ruled in violation of refugees' constitutional rights under Section 7 for um, life, liberty, and security of the person. Legislation remains in place for the next six months. This was only a trial court ruling, so there are two further levels of appeal, the Federal Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada, and we can probably expect that the Canadian government will appeal those rulings. Typically, the government attempts to do that because what they want to do is to get the highest and best ruling on legal principles that have such wide-ranging consequences, especially for an international agreement like this one. So that's the background. Okay, so I think we're just going to put a pin on this particular note because we don't know whether or not the federal government is going to appeal the ruling at this point. But I do think that there is a lot of meat to get into, and I want to get an expert on refugee law to maybe flesh this one out for a future show. Yeah, yeah. This is going to have big implications, although we will see what those implications are because we don't know what's going to happen with the uh, American election, which may make all of this moot. So moving on... The whole uh, we-tastrophe, have we discussed, uh, decided on like a, the we-tastrophe, <laughs> have we decided on a, a scandal like we-gate, not we-gate, because gate is now terribly cliche, have we decided on that phrase yet? <sighs> I haven't even thought about it. Yeah, I, I mean, we've done gate before. Look, we are, again, taping this uh, before the Justin Trudeau, Katie Telford as chief of staff, the Keelbergers, and a whole bunch of really interesting people are set to testify at committee um, in front of the finance committee. So I don't really want to get into this uh, too much at this point. The wee laps, the wee laps. The wee laps, the wee rabbit. Anyway, we're going to figure out how uh, deeply interconnected some of these organizations are with our political elite. Um, I think there's going to be more to say about this later. I think I have a column sort of percolating in my head, but I want to see that testimony. In the meantime, Sandy, are you a little surprised that our finance minister, Bill Morneau, is still our finance minister? Well, I am. We had a talk about this last week, didn't we? And I'm such a Pollyanna. I really am the kind of person who thinks that, you know, major principles get serious consideration at the very top of the government. But apparently, once again, yet again, I'm wrong. So let's just be clear. So Bill Morneau admitted that he had failed to pay back a mere $41,000 to Wee for a trip that he took to Kenya, and then was just like, ah, sorry about that, gonna pay that right back, and didn't resign over the matter, because then he then subsequently sat in on the meeting to award Wee this grant program, which would have probably would have helped that organization out. So there was a $912 million grant program, sole source grant program, which was intended to, to help uh, pay for student volunteers in the midst of the time of COVID. And I think uh, we was going to take some administrative fee for administering that grant. I guess my take on, on this one, 
Jen, is it's a little bit more nuanced in the sense that Morneau, it wasn't that we had billed Morneau this money and that he didn't pay it and then found the debt. What it turned out was that he had paid for part of his travels with we. Um, and then he, on closer examination, what he found was that we had assumed part of this and then he wanted to pay it back. But the whole point of everything is that he was much, much more personally entangled with the we organization than he originally represented to Canadians. Why are you going on we tour groups to Kenya, man? I mean, come on. Like, wh- like, why are you doing What that? year was that? Um, summer of 2017 to learn about we projects. So, I mean, this would be the equivalent of like a junket. I mean, yeah. just in the media side. I mean, media people very, well, we used to, not anymore. But we used to get offered free trips to go learn about blah, 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 this company that was doing something or a government program was doing something. And we in the media would have to be like, no, yeah. we're not taking your free trip because that would be an obvious conflict of interest. Yeah. So like, and I'm a lowly nobody hack. Like, yeah. like I, I don't matter for anything. And yet I would not be able to take a free trip because that would potentially compromise my reporting on the subject. So the end of the finance minister was yeah, doing exactly. this. Exactly. This is insane. This is why I was I am such a disappointed Pollyanna again because to me it's not even like this is a just a member of the caucus or a backbencher or a minor cabinet minister. This is the minister of finance and I'm actually really astounded that the policies and procedures were not in place to protect Canadians from this kind of issue. And I do think it has bearing on decisions that are made in cabinet about the awarding of contracts. And if not, you know, this is the classical justice must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. And I, this isn't just that it smells bad. It is bad. This is wrong. And it really disturbs me that our Minister of Finance is still in the in that saddle today. Oh, Sandy, there's he's never going to resign. Who are they going to replace them with? Sad Pollyanna. What can I say? Who Who are they going to replace them with? (laughs) This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Is your bank putting you on hold when it comes to your investment questions? They take your money, but not your phone calls. They make you book a meeting just to book a meeting. There is a better way. Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. When you invest with Wealthbar, they'll pair you with a professionally managed portfolio that's tailored to your goals. Their convenient app makes it easy to set up automatic deposits, open new accounts, and check in with your progress anytime. And when you have questions, their financial advisors are available directly through the app. No appointment necessary. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealthbar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand, and you'll get a $100 fee credit. We are joined today by Marc-André Argentino, a PhD candidate at Concordia University. His research examines how extremist groups leverage technology to create propaganda, recruit members to ideological causes, inspire acts of violence, and impact democratic institutions. Argentino is an associate fellow at the Global Network on Extremism and Technology and an associate researcher at SAFER, the Center for Expertise and Training on Religious Fundamentalism and Radicalization. Good morning, Marc-André Argentino. Good morning. Thank you for having me today. Marc-André, I'm so pleased that you're here today because, to be perfectly blunt, I haven't really been following QAnon that closely. I mean, I understand that it's a big conspiracy theory, but whenever I try to delve into it, to be blunt, it all just seems so bizarre and convoluted that I can't follow it. So I'm kind of hoping that you can explain to us, what is QAnon? Being confused about QAnon is entirely 
normal. It is a very confusing and convoluted movement. I really appreciate that. And I feel I feel personally validated and I appreciate it. Honestly, I, as someone who researches this full time, I'm still not sure I really fully understand at times what this community believes in, but I will do my best to paint a very broad picture of what QAnon is. Fundamentally, QAnon is a conspiracy theory that posits that a deep state cabal of satanic pedophile global elites are responsible for all the evil in the world. Oh, so Satanism is back. That's so Satanism interesting. Satanism is back. The satanic panic is back. Oh, I'm excited. I have I have a whole story coming about this. I wasn't aware that Satanism was back. I'm thrilled. That gives me a fantastic hook. Oh, if you're familiar with the SRA satanic panics of the 80s, you know, you're going to find some echoes in the QAnon movement. But what's different is QAnon also believes that these elites are seeking to bring down Donald Trump. And they also believe that Donald Trump is the world's only hope in defeating this deep state. And basically, they believe that Donald Trump, along with a group of individuals who are from military intelligence, are uh, working together to, you know, save the world from this large satanic pedophilic evil. Okay, but wait a minute, because I mean, in what planet is there a, a satanic cabal formed of evil and powerful men in which Donald Trump himself is not part of it? That is the difficult question to answer where believers in QAnon cannot perceive the figure of President Trump as part of this wider evil. He's kind of this messianic slash prophetic figure that's kind of on a pedestal and is not affected by it because he's there just to save the world. And if anyone claims that he is an evil person, they're part of the deep state. Can you just give us a sense of how and when QAnon started? QAnon started on an image board called 4chan, and it was on October 28th, 2017, in a thread called The Calm Before the Storm, that an anonymous user signing off as Q stated that Hillary Clinton will be arrested between 7.45am and 8.30am on Monday, October 30th. And Q's nom de plume is a reference to Q clearance, which is a level in the United States Department of Energy. So it is a clearance level. And QAnon also finds its origin a year prior in the Pizzagate conspiracy theory that alleges coded words and satanic symbols apparent in John Podesta's hacked emails during his tenure as the, as the chair of Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, which would point to a secret sex trafficking ring at a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. called Comic Ping Pong. And that came to a head in December 2016 when uh, Edgar Welsh decided to show up at the pizza shop with an AR-15 to self-investigate if there was actually a basement full of children at the pizza shop, which doesn't even have a basement. And kind of out of the fallout of Pizzagate, QAnon began in 2017 to grow and take some of those you know, beliefs of child trafficking by a group of powerful elites and adapted it to this wider pro-Trump conspiracy. But Hillary Clinton wasn't arrested, so they were wrong. They were, and they have been wrong for pretty much all of their 4,600 Q drops that have happened right now. There's not one that have come to fruition. I don't get it. So then why are people still believing in this dude? This is the challenge with conspiracy theories is that it's not about secular evidence. It's about faith to an extent where you're trying to explain away the problem of evil. And if this is what you're trying to do, if your worries and your concerns are projected onto this wider maligned actor, which is the deep state, Illuminati, whatever you want to call it, then you're going to believe in that. And you're going to project it on there. And it doesn't matter if 
other individuals are telling you they're wrong, it's they're biased or they're trying to disprove you or they're part of the problem. And it's only you and your close community of believers who have the secret knowledge that are aware of this and are trying to do their best to fight in this large information war. So for them, anything that contradicts their beliefs is the enemy using information in this wider war that they're fighting to try to discredit them. Now, Marc-Andre, uh, the QAnon movement is really on the rise. Uh, I saw from your uh, Twitter thread that you posted uh, two days ago on July 25th, where you have a number of graphs and charts documenting your research on the increasing uh, frequency and volume of QAnon postings and activity, uh, notwithstanding that I guess Twitter has recently taken action to remove QAnon. Can you tell us how does QAnon, in terms of volume and activity, compare with other um, far-right movements and, and activity like the Boogaloo Boys, Incel Movement, Proud Boys and these other movements. And I wonder if you could just maybe place QAnon within that matrix and relate it to those and, and describe, is it a breakout movement in your opinion? I think it would be easier to compare QAnon at least with the incel movement or the Boogaloo movement versus Proud Boys, simply because the incel group and the Boogaloo movement kind of have their origins on these image boards where, you know, QAnon originated on Pole, the Boogaloo was originated on the libertarian version, which would be K-board that talked about weapons. I just want to clarify for listeners that the incel movement refers to involuntary celibates. So it's usually generally young men who are have trouble with women and Boogaloo movement is an anti-government, generally speaking, associated with the alt-right, but not necessarily. They are these very fringe communities that a lot of people would have perceived as silly or weird. And I think 18 months ago, even in Canada, we wouldn't have perceived the type of threats that we would from the Boogaloo movement or the Intel movement or QAnon movement as you would, let's say, with the Proud Boys or any other group that is more closely associated to, you know, the traditional far right that is usually white power movement, neo-Nazis, accelerationists. There's more of an existing core and understanding of the possible threats from more extreme groups. But these fringe movements really originate in this weird space where people didn't take them seriously. And we've seen over the past 12 months, you no, know, incel attacks have happened in a, a larger number than most people would have anticipated. This year already, uh, CSIS in their uh, report included uh, the incel movement as an ideologically motivated violent extremist threat, which is still something significant. We've seen a lot of incidents from the Boogaloo movement in the US, but at least five or six major arrests. And now QAnon has been on the rise and we've seen an increase in, you know, action that has gone from a digital radicalization to offline action. And there has been at least six cases of prominence arrests related to violence and one individual even arrested for uttering terroristic threats. So this movement is growing and becoming mainstream. And I think part of the reason for this, at least for QAnon, is the pandemic has played a key role in shining light on the movement, but giving it a platform upon which it could grow and bring new people into the fold. Because QAnon acts as this umbrella conspiracy theory, though they have the central tenet of, you know, the deep state cabal controlling everything, if you have other conspiracy theories that are able to adapt and sustain that main narrative line, you could kind of come into it. So you see individuals who think, you know, the deep state is actually this reptilian race and they're controlling the world. 
or a Q is an extraterrestrial and he's giving Donald Trump secret knowledge from the future or you know pretty much anything as long as you're not a flat earther you're welcome into the group so because of the pandemic and now you know new age spiritualities anti-vaxxers and this alternative medicine disinformation that's been getting prominence because this is a, a medical pandemic QAnon has kind of meshed with these groups and it's given them an increased platform especially as they're promoting you know the bioweapon narrative about covid or 5g cause covid or masks are a way for the government to control you or vaccines are going are to be used to microchip and control people all of this has given them platforms to find resonance within a population crisis and this is kind of why we've seen this growing number hmm. so mark andre explain to me you know how does this crazy difficult to pin amorphous conspiracy actually take people from you know, buying into some crazy community online to, uh, you know, potentially being violent in the real world. Do we have a good sense of what causes that transformation to occur? Not yet. There's some work that I've been doing to look at that based on existing research that involves radicalization to violence. However, QAnon is different than a movement, let's say, like ISIS or the Proud Boys or even something more extreme, let's say, like, yeah. Adam Waffen, like this is very a very different group where most of what they do is based on they're fighting an information war and they're just digital soldiers and they're going to win this battle with memes and their alternative stories and YouTube videos. However, there is a possibility for these individuals where if you're disenfranchised with the lack of action by Q, or if you believe that the information war is not being won, or if you're an individual who for some reason, is in a type of crisis that for personal reasons, you may perceive your ideological worldview, if it's rooted in QAnon, let's say, as something that could be a vector for you to externalize your concerns and the crisis that you're in, and that could end up in offline violence. However, there's a lot of ways that QAnon is also externalized that's not necessarily violent. We see individuals that are actually campaigning on a QAnon platform in the U.S., and this is a way where you're going beyond just the quote-unquote information war and actually looking to get elected as you know a politician in a way to bring the war against the deep state at a political level. So there's there's a lot of different ways to look at this you know offline action for the QAnon movement. That's sort of interesting to me because I mean one of the things that I was discovering when I was sort of researching the Satanic Panic was the moment where this goes from conspiracy theory to, you know, actual social movement or moral panic is the moment when you have elite members of society start to buy in. So political, law enforcement, academic, when people sort of at that and media, when people at that level start taking the conspiracy seriously, that tells me that this has moved from some creepy fringe online movement into something much broader and potentially more destructive. No, and I would agree with that, that it's kind of reflective of these past case studies as well. And it's not only satanic panic, you could even think of something just as like a wider political movement when you saw the political activation of the religious right in the US in the 80s following the influence of Jerry Falwell. You see that at, to a certain extent, people need to move from this nebulous space of action and actually put boots on the ground and actually decide that we are going to initiate change. And it's kind of that same movement. However, there's always a potential that that could turn violent for a minority of individuals. Mm. And I kind of want to stress that point. Though there is a potential for radicalization in QAnon, there's just a very small potential in that for radicalization to violence. The question now about radicalization and violence is even if the 
proportion is small, the larger that the group grows, that has a corresponding increase in risk. I note that the FBI has identified homegrown violent extremists as one of their primary sources of concern about terrorist violence and extremist violence in the United States. And that's something like uh, 76% of all domestic extremist-related killings over the last decade have come from the right-wing extremist movement. So I wonder if you would comment on the potential threat uh, as QAnon ascends and, and gains currency in the wider public conversation. I think the threat to public security that QAnon presents is not necessarily exclusive to QAnon itself, but it's representative of a broader current in the American and Canadian, probably global information landscape in all honesty, that the increased consumption and circulation of misinformation on social media and its negative consequences is events, especially by QAnon, but its effects on public safety are not limited to it. You know, the emergence of future conspiracy theories could also be effective at radicalizing individuals to, you know, terrorism, violence, or even violent extremism. But you know, I don't think we could rule this out as a threat. And I think the particular threat for something like QAnon in one context could be if there is a growing overlap between, you know, QAnon and more extremist groups. And this is, you had mentioned early on, like the action that Twitter had taken. This is something where you're talking about something like, let's say, deplatforming. If you're forcing a group that is dangerous and does pose several threats to our societies, but you push them off mainstream platforms and they end up somewhere, let's say, like, telegram or something where there is no moderation well if you're overlapping with more extremist groups then you create yourself as a potential recruit for something more dangerous one thing that strikes me is that i think while the the risk of individual terrorist action is not insignificant with these groups it's almost like considering the risk in too narrow a format i mean if we start to see people in politics start to espouse this theory that you know the American government is run by a deep state cabal of secret Satanists. I mean, I think what you're actually potentially setting the groundwork for is another repetition of the Red Scare. This is not just a risk that could be limited to the odd violent terroristic incident. This is a risk that could hold an entire institution uh, ideologically captive and start a, a scare or a panic within those institutions. And I think that would be just enormously destructive to the broader social fabric as well. No, that it is very destructive. And you know, something even closer to, to what we've experienced recently is QAnon is similar in a way to the Tea Party movement. And it's really this wider, broader political movement, right? And when I t do my research or when I do interviews, I try to break the threat from QAnon into three levels. So one is national security because there is always that threat and it's the big one that people always ask questions about. But I think the two more important ones that we need to talk about right now is the public health threat posed by QAnon and then the threat it poses to our democratic institutions. And these are the two that I think the bigger threat exists, especially in the case of a global pandemic where QAnon has been promoting and amplifying and even getting viral, you know, anti-vaxxer documentaries like Plandemic or promoting hoaxes like Film Your Hospital, where people were going to film that there were no patients suffering from COVID outside the hospitals. They've, you know, spread fake cards to say that you don't have to wear a mask in public. They're promoting anti-mask narratives. They're misrepresenting research about vaccine and the benefit of masks. That is a huge pool of potential public health threats when it comes to a global pandemic. And we're still trying to get this under control, prevent second waves. And ultimately, there will be a question when it comes to if there is a cure or a vaccine, how do you promote and sell a vaccine to a group of individuals that is not 
interested or does not believe in it. That is a huge threat. And now with 66 congressional candidates, you have to ask what the impact of this is on democratic institutions when you have these type of individuals that are going for election. You have to balance out some like Twitter, let's say, okay, Twitter wants to censor QAnon, but then what does that mean for those that are campaigning on a QAnon platform? We do have, you know, democratic processes that are rooted in this. So if you're limiting information for people, what does that mean for a democratic institution? But then what does it mean if you have elected officials that espouse these weird and potentially dangerous ideologies if they get into office? So there's these very contentious and difficult questions that are going to be coming up in the very near future that I think are way more prominent than is someone going to pick up a gun now if Trump doesn't get election and go shoot people up? I think there's a wider pool of questions that are up there. And I think that's the weakness in our societal fabric is really presented more on these last two ideas related to QAnon question about the Canadian context to this. Now, we've recently had the incident at Rideau Hall where there was an armed attacker who attempted to uh, breach security and, and in fact was able to breach security at Rideau Hall, the residence of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Governor General. They weren't there and there is some reason to believe that there is a QAnon connection. Uh, tell us more about the Canadian context. What connection, if any, you have been able to discern about that attacker and whether this poses any sort of threat more broadly in Canada? Based on Corey Huron's social media activity, there was a single post about QAnon on March 27. He had two pictures that were posted relating to QAnon, and then he had a series of QAnon hashtags. There is not more evidence than that at the moment. And I don't think one meme three months ago is enough to qualify him as a QAnon believer. But looking at his wider social media posts, he is part or at least was part of a conspiracy theory ecosystem on social media where he was consuming and sharing some of that content. And that's kind of reflective actually of QAnon Canada in a way where a lot of the conspiracy theorists that believe in QAnon are part of this wider hodgepodge of individuals who believe in various things, whether there is a secret UN agenda to control Canada and the world or anti-vaxxers or the yellow vest, which is how QAnon initially came to Canada. And it's really just a mix of individuals. However, we do have some key influencers in the Canadian QAnon contents, at least with um, one individual called Amazing Polly. There's also uh, Agent Margaritaville, who are kind of prominent QAnon figures. They're not as large as some of the influencers you have in the US with a few hundred thousand followers, but they are quite present in the Canadian context and have made waves with various types of disinformation. Last I checked, I think Agent Margaritaville is on the run from the police for intimidating a witness. Can you tell us what Q's influence is in Canada, uh, both regionally and nationally? Regionally is interesting. I'll start there at the micro level because I've had some recent conversations with local reporters about the growing presence of QAnon in very small rural communities, whether it's in northeastern Ontario, where there's been actually it made the rebel news recently where there's a beach that's been closed and there's been the protesters that have been going to the beach anyways to defy the order. And you've seen the Q logo painted on the side of barns, or you've seen protesters holding Q signs. In Magog, Quebec, there was someone who follows me on Twitter sent me a picture of this little like 
hot dog shop that has a where we go when we go all sign prominently posted in the restaurant. What is the where we go when we go? What does that mean? Where we go one, where we go all is the QAnon slogan that they have taken from the movie White Squall. And it's kind of their rallying cry where, you know, QAnon followers will support and follow each other wherever they go in this kind of information ecosystem. Well, that seems scary. It is. And it's this growing impact. And even in little towns in the UK and Ireland, I've had followers showing me these pictures. And at the micro municipal level, if we're not equipped, let's say at a national level to deal with something like this, it's even more contentious for these little communities, especially when we think about promoting the wearing of masks and all that. It's it's a very difficult place when QAnon is participating in anti-mask protests. And I guess at a larger level, in 2019, September, Mac Lamour was uh, reporting that one of the candidates for the PPC, Billy Joyce, had a YouTube channel where he was promoting QAnon conspiracy theories and doing decodes. So we could see also that there is an interest at a higher level politically, at least with one candidate, which will probably go for Canada follows and emulates the US like we do in many things, that we might see a growing number of individuals running for office at the municipal, provincial or federal level kind of believing in using this. And we also saw, at least on the 1st of July, when we had the protests on Parliament Hill, there was a very good presence of QAnon believers. You heard a chance of where we go one, we go all, QAnon shirts, promotion of QAnon conspiracy theories at the podium where the individuals were going up to speak. So there is a growing community of QAnon believers in Canada. And there's also a growing one in Quebec. And there is a reason to distinguish QAnon Quebec from QAnon Canada. Like the QAnon Quebec is actually really closely linked with QAnon France and QAnon Europe. So they're kind of this vector to introduce a transnational dimension of QAnon to the world. And it's bridging this gap where you see French videos on YouTube of QAnon decodes being translated into Italian and Spanish for the QAnon community abroad. So there is a, this growing role of media figures some individuals in politics, or just large groups on Facebook of gathering a fair amount of Canadians. You mentioned the yellow vest as a point of origin. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So a lot of the early social media data that I have about QAnon in Canada and in France was the movement was overlapping with the yellow vest. And this is because in Canada, at least, the yellow vests were regularly promoting this wider conspiracy about a UN global agenda. And it kind of overlapped with some of the QAnon conspiracies that were going on at that time. Specifically, some of the early posts by the figure known as Q were about the Uranium One scandal and the what's called the Pedogate conspiracy theory, where prominent figures were part of this wider pedophile conspiracy theory, one of which was actually our Prime Minister and the Trudeau Foundation document they have from, I think, 2017 or 18 that had what QAnon believers say hidden pedophile symbols in the background of the PDF. And that overlap between the Yellow Vest protesters' conspiracy theories and the QAnon conspiracy theories introduced the groups to each other and kind of gave prominence to QAnon in Canada. Whereas before the Yellow Vest, it was not really making headways. Hmm. You know, it's... um. Interesting to me because you had mentioned before that Agent Margaritaville and Amazing Polly were two users in Canada who were sort of well-known QAnoners. Is that the same Amazing Polly who started the Wayfair child sex conspiracy on Twitter a couple of weeks ago? She is the exact same one. She posted that four weeks, I believe, or three weeks before the Wayfair conspiracy went viral. And some non-QAnon people kind of picked up on 
that narrative and promoted it to their massive following. And then QAnon jumped back on the bandwagon. So initially, it really didn't pick up from when Amazing Polly had posted it the first time. But weeks down the road, some QAnon latched onto it and they ran with it. Is there a target audience? I acknowledge it's hard to, to say that with, with something that's as amorphous as this movement. Is there a community that is more vulnerable than others to this messaging? I notice friends, I mean, discussions with friends, a lot of people that I talk to are concerned about what their parents are getting online and, and the disinformation that their parents are being um, subjected to and also sharing. But I'm wondering, just in general, who's vulnerable here? I don't think anyone is immune to conspiracy theory beliefs. That is part of how humans have evolved to adapt and make sense of the world. There's different degrees, however. I think those who are susceptible to consuming disinformation or misinformation on the regular are probably the same, which would be those who may have a lower media literacy or who do not have the proper skill sets or the desire to actually verify their source of information are probably more susceptible. But we've seen individuals in positions of power actually just start believing in QAnon and including that in their, you know, world life and daily behavior. So I don't think anyone is very immune. It really comes down to it's situational in the sense that is there something in your life that would put you in a situation where if you fall upon QAnon or anything similar to QAnon to fill that hole and provide answers to these questions that you're going through. I think that's more how it how the challenges. And now that QAnon is gaining prominence, it's probably higher up on the list of possible answers than it was a year ago. Jen has mentioned the satanic panic. I'd also point to the radicalization the, um, of Islamic extremism amongst Canadians and amongst North Americans and, and Europeans who were recruited and, and went to join ISIS in Syria. And for a while, that seemed to be an incredibly alarming development. And then that wave seemed to have subsided. Is there a trajectory and a, a lifespan to these kinds of movements? What else are you looking at in that direction? My PhD actually started looking at how ISIS recruits people. And that was my initial PhD work and kind of changed that since QAnon got so big. But I think there's a key difference between something like QAnon and ISIS or even other groups that are similar to ISIS in the sense that it's not necessarily an active recruitment. So with ISIS, you could consume the propaganda, you could get into groups and channels. But to really fall down the radicalization hole, you had to have someone who would recruit you or bring you to a fold and really guide you down the rabbit hole. For QAnon, because it is a decentralized amorphous movement, a lot of people could just fall down the rabbit hole on their own and don't necessarily need someone to guide them, but they will make friends along the way. There's no active or there's very, very little active recruitment. You're not going to have, you know, Joe Blow from down the street knock on your door and say, hey, have you heard of QAnon? Or you're not necessarily going to get a lot of messages going, oh, do you want to join this movement? It's really about providing a very large pool of toxic information or disinformation that people could fall upon and then confirmation biases will really bring them in. There is cycles to these movements, but with conspiracy theories, they have a longer lifespan than I think some extremist ideologies. Whereas, you know, with ISIS, you lose your territory, you lose the war, you see all these deaths and the leader gets killed. There really was a decline in the movement. You've seen things, same things with other radical movements where if you take down the leadership or you remove their top influencers, you kind of see the movement die down. QAnon doesn't necessarily need that. We've seen the figure known as Q not 
post for months on end and influencers or community members have just created content on their own and ran with it based on past material. I don't think that QAnon necessarily is going to leave if Q would disappear. I don't think even they're going to disappear if President Trump would lose his re-election. And even if he does lose, there's still four possibilities uh, that I think QAnon could morph into if he does lose. One would be that a good segment of QAnon will remain as keyboard warriors. So they will harden into a more dedicated core of believers. They will think that the deep state is in control and they're the reasons why Donald Trump has lost. And they will need to double their efforts in the information war. And this will create a continuous pool of propaganda and conspiracy theories for an unknown amount of time. The second possibility, very unlikely, though it kind of breaks off out of this first pool, is there is always a possibility that some may see the information war as loss and their efforts were not enough. And maybe the fact that they took the oath of service that was popular among QAnon believers a few weeks ago or some other conspiracy theory within the wide pool of QAnon conspiracy theories could lead them to believe that there is no political solution and that maybe violence could be the answer. The third option, which kind of falls off the option B, would be that some QAnon believers who are disenfranchised with the movement, with the lack of results from Q over four years, will become a potential pool of recruits for more extreme movements and groups. And, you know, this kind of growing overlap between QAnon and more extreme groups on platform like Telegram may be an indication of this, but it's still hard to predict what could happen there. And the fourth possibility is there's already a QAnon church that exists, and there's QAnon that's finding a lot of echoes in religion. There's a chance that a segment of QAnon adherents could form and continue to grow as these new religious movements with all the potentials that that may entail. A church? Wait, you mean like a physical church where they go and worship the Q? It's called... Uh, home congregation. So they're home-based churches trying to replicate the early churches, which was basically one leader and 10 to 12 people following. However, with the pandemic, they went online in February and they offer online services every Sunday where they quote-unquote train people to become part of their church. And what they do is they interpret QAnon conspiracy theories through the Bible and then they use QAnon conspiracy in turn to reinterpret the Bible. So there's a back and forth where they've included QAnon in their rituals or if they have to, they offer a biblical explanation to what is happening with QAnon. Wow. You know, what I really want this whole conspiracy to do is to go full circle and actually start worshiping Q from Star Trek. <laughs> that would be awesome. I would not be against that. The ideal final outcome would be for Q to adopt the mask as a symbol. And we could stop this pandemic cold and start to get on with normal lives. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been extremely informative. Thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. This was great to talk to you all. And now it's time to open up the mailbag. Your cards and letters, everybody, and your drawings. You haven't sent drawings. Today's question comes from Kristen on Twitter. If you were casting a movie about Justin Trudeau's government, what genre would it be and which actors would you cast? It would be dark satire, a combination of like the death of Stalin meets the thick of it. Right? Yes. <laughs> Freeland, Lisa Kudrow, Murnau, Ethan Hawke, and Trudeau very obviously would be played by Will Smith. I still think that we're in the uh, beginning season or the beginning episodes of a Perry Mason, and we will be finding out more and soon. If you have a question that you want us to answer on the show, you can tweet us at OppoCast or send us an email at oppo at com.
And that's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back in two weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalandshow.com or on Twitter at oppocast. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt and theme music by Nathan Burley.